stories follow a similar pattern. There's some sort of introduction or exposition that introduces kind of the, the characters a little bit, the setting and that such. So, you know, start out with the hobbits in the Shire, right? Or Luke's hanging out on Tatooine with Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen, that sort of thing. That's followed then by some sort of challenge to the protagonist. Some, uh, you know, we usually think of the protagonist as the good guy, although in modern movies, you know, the protagonists tend to be more complicated. They're not always super good. And maybe it's always been that way. I don't know. But something happens, right? There's some problem or some threat takes place. Or something disrupts the main character's life or their story. So Gandalf and Frodo discover that Bilbo's ring is the one ring. Uh, R2-D2 shows up with a message for Ben Kenobi from Leia. That sort of thing. All of a sudden, oh, everything's messed up. We call that the rising action, the conflict. And that course is followed by some sort of resolution or climax, or uh, if you want the fancy word, I, I'm pronouncing it as denouement. If you like French terms. Um, not the denouement. Problem is confronted, it's dealt with, and then the story ends always with some sort of resolution, right? So. Frodo and Sam destroy the ring, Luke destroys the Death Star, and then the last act, there's closure. Everything goes back to some sort of peace and harmony. Luke, you know, in the end of Star Wars, gets a nice medal, right? And Frodo and Sam, they return to the Shire after Aragorn is crowned king, and then, you know, Frodo goes off into the Eastlands and that sort of thing, and everybody's happy, happy, joy. Um, so the creation, that we've talked about the last couple weeks is that first part, right? That's act one. Kind of gets us where we're going. And today we're going to introduce the second part of that, the drama, part of the drama of the history, or the conflict, or as we'll call it, of course, the fall. Now, my review, remember that the Bible, the overarching story of Scripture falls through four themes, right? The creation, the fall, the redemption, and the restoration. And these, of course, correspond to those four movements that we just talked about in drama. Uh, the theme of the creation kind of has to do, right, with not just how everything got here. In fact, we honestly didn't really talk any about that. I mean, we could have had a bunch of sermons on, you know, seven-day young earth creationism and seven-day not-so-young earth creationism and gap theories and all these other different ideas that people have about creation. We, we didn't go there. Um, we talked more about the whys. Why creation? And we noted that creation matters because from it, from it flow meaning and purpose. God is the creator and he creates everything with meaning and purpose. And it, that's what makes our lives possible and worth living. And everything and everyone is created in God's design and by God's design and with purpose, and to achieve their greatest meaning and pleasure is to live according to that purpose. When everything functions according to the way God designed it, when we do that, we are, we are living our best life, so to speak. We also noted that when God speaks into the darkness and he creates light and he separates the darkness and the light on the first day, it's God taking chaos and bringing order. He creates order for days and times and seasons. He creates order for the family. He creates order for his creatures. 
reproduce and to thrive and to be able to fill the earth with life. Everything has order because God created order. Order doesn't happen by accident. It happens because someone intervened in some way to bring order. Finally, the last time that we talked about how the creation is created because there's love in the three persons of the Trinity, and that love needed to be expressed. Together, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all whom we noted last week are involved in the creation, decided that the best expression of that love was to create this universe through Jesus and for Jesus. And so love exists not because we're trying to, uh, as Jean-Paul Sartre would say, push away the existential dread. And love doesn't exist, unlike modern biology would say, because there's just mere chemical processes and pheromones, and it exists so that we can reproduce. In fact, the entire creation is bound up in Trinitarian love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And their desire to express that love to their creation, which is us. Creation is ultimately all about relationships. Within the Trinity and between God and his creation. Now, from understanding the why of creation, we're going to see in Genesis 2 how the stage that is set for the fall to happen. So set the stage. Because every good story has to set the stage, right? Where does the story take place? Who are the characters? What are the conditions? So I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. You will probably know from your previous experiences that God creates plants and animals and all that kind of stuff. And that he eventually creates Adam. Right? Days go on, he creates plants, creates animals, he creates Adam. We're going to pick up the story at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis. In verse 31 it says, God's resting from his creation. And he says, and God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, sixth day. So the sixth day, God's done with the work part, right? And then he rests on the seventh day, which, of course, sets the story, or sets the pattern of the week for us. And he looks at his handiwork, and he declares it kineto, very good. Which isn't good like a bowl of moose tracks is good. Which is good. But it indicates wholeness and completeness, peace and perfection. It's not just good like something tastes good. It's, it's good in the existential sense. Everything is the way God wanted it to be, the way it should be. And so into this perfect place, God takes Adam, he takes the man, and he gives him a purpose, and he gives him an instruction. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So Adam is taken, he's put in the garden, he's given purpose in meaningful work to tend and keep the garden. That's important for a couple of reasons. First, we need to remember, work is part of the creation. We're given meaning and purpose in things God appoints for us to do. In the restoration, when all things are made like they were meant to be, we will surely have meaningful, purposeful work to do for the Lord. You are not going to sit 
on a cloud playing a harp. Now, I mean, a couple of you might. I mean, Jeannie might get to you because she's a pretty good musician. But Orville, his musical career is probably done in New Jersey. So that's okay. I'm sure I'll have something better than you. It won't involve computers, though, because there are no computers in heaven. They're all on the other place. <laughs> anyway. Secondly, that work that God originally assigned to Adam was not drudgery. It was not difficult and futile like work seems now. That's going to come in here pretty soon. But God didn't set Adam up, put him in the garden, and go, now I'm going to make you suffer 40 hours a week. <laughs> Nothing like that. It was wonderful for Adam. But he also gives him a test. There's a test for the newly created Adam. It's a test of obedience. God has created Adam with this ability to choose for himself. Now, I'm not going to address the whys of that or anything. Or why didn't God? Why does God allow me? Okay, you know what? I got whole books on that. If you want to read them, I'll give you three, and then you'll know even less than I do. <laughs> you know, it's one of those questions that just, in the end, it is what it is. God gives him a choice. He says, hey, look at all this good stuff. You can eat what you want. It's a, it's a vegan paradise. Okay, Jolene would have been so happy. Right? You can eat what you want, except you cannot eat from this one tree. You can't have the pomegranates. When you ever cut one of those things open, they just look evil inside. Sure, who knows what it You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Probably the kumquat. You ever had one of those? They're disgusting. Oh, they're gross. And 
And so he shows Adam all the animals, so he realizes he is different from all those things. And then he makes the woman and brings the woman to Adam. And what does he say? This at last. At last, right? Because he's already looked at all the animals and gone, no, 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 that's great, yeah. Alpacas, awesome. Probably looked at the platypus and kind of went, Eve has created us as partners, and they are created to be individuals who complement one another, and hence then together with one flesh. Now, of course, that story is also an etiology of how we get marriage. But that's for another time. I keep using this word etiology. You know what an etiology is? Maybe I shouldn't use that word. An etiology is a story of how you get the origin of something. So like when I talk about how the creation story is an etiology of the week, it's how we get the seven-day week. It's, all, it's an origin story. It's like Iron Man 1. How does Tony Stark become Iron Man? That's what it is. The most important part for the setting of the stage for, act, uh, for this act of the fall is this last line. Verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, we probably kind of gloss over that sometimes and think, well, yeah, no, they're naked. Yeah, no big deal. There's no sin nation. But I don't think we necessarily think through the implications of what that really means. There they are in the garden. They are partners to tend and do God's work in this new creation. And they're in perfect harmony with one another. There's no conflict. There's no conflict between them and God. There's no conflict between them and nature. There's no conflict between them and anybody. It's perfect harmony. And so the idea that they are naked and unashamed is a shorthand for saying they're in relational perfection. All their relationships are perfect, exactly as they should be. At this moment, they exist in perfect harmony with everyone and everything. And that's about to change. Chapter 3. We'll see they fall into sin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, Yeah, you will not surely die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, I wonder where we heard that from. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, every story needs an antagonist, right? You've got to reveal it. Enter the Nakash, the serpent. <laughs> we know from Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 2, is, is Satan. Or Satan speaking through a serpent, or Satan in the guise of a serpent, or something like that. And the cat, when it says the cash there, we actually don't really know exactly what that word means, so we just use serpent. Because we're not 100% sure. 
Now, the origins of this deceiver would require a whole other additional sermon. But for our purposes, we just need to know that somewhere in this creation, in the time of creation or prior to the physical creation, God created other spiritual beings, and some of them chose to rebel against God. So it comes to the one who apparently, as some were either told by Adam or God, the one instruction, right, from the tree, and challenges her understanding of it. And she's deceived. And she eats. And she gives to Adam. And he eats. Man! Everything changes in an instant. It's like having a car crash. Boom, it happens and you don't even realize it happens. Now before we are too hard on Eve or even Adam, who doesn't, you notice, challenge his wife here, he doesn't say, now wait a minute, honey, God said not to do that. Let's think about their experience to this point. Because I, I, I've heard so many sermons in my life. So I'm an old man now, so I'll take a lot of <laughs> Bash and Eve. Bash and Adam. Adam should have stood up to his wife. Eve should have blah, blah, blah. Oh, Jesus. Why don't you think about this? Who, who have Adam and Eve up to this point interacted with? Each other, the animals, who up until this point, as far as we know, do not talk, <laughs> and God. They have no experience with deception or evil or that anyone would lie to them because they don't know what a lie is because they don't know what good and evil is. They are completely and wholly innocent in the sense that they, they, have no, they have no idea. And so, think about it. They certainly like God. I mean, God's great. He's awesome. Hang out in his regard. Right? And so, they like each other. Had no conflict with animals at this point. I mean, they pet all the grizzly bears they want at this point. So fluffy and cuddly. Don't you, when you see one, don't you just want to pet it? <laughs> when you see a bear, you want to pet a bear. Because they just look cuddly, right? Or you know what? If you go out to the, the Black Hills or, or out in Yellowstone, those bison are out there. And, and they just look so cuddly and friendly, like you just want to pet that big furry head. Don't. Okay? Don't. All right. Just let me know. Okay? They like God. And I, I can you imagine being told that I mean, they have no reason to not believe the serpent because they've never been deceived. They don't know about deception. And so they're thinking, well, we like God. Being like God, that'd be pretty sweet. Is that not a recurring theme through the scriptures? People wanting to be like God? Okay, let's build this tower all the way to the heavens so we can be like God. So what the servant says kind of makes sense to her. And so she decides that knowledge fruit is on the menu with dinner tonight. Yep, yep, yep. And their eyes were open. Right, it says that like two or three times. The implication there is they suddenly and instantaneously had an entire new understanding of the universe. But in this case, it was not the wisdom they had hoped for 
understanding of sin and evil. And that they have just sinned. And they knew instantly, not only had they disobeyed God, but that their disobedience had massive consequences. Because now they suddenly feel something they had never experienced before, or even knew existed. Guilt and shame. Notice how the first thing that they understand is that they are naked. <laughs> and they sew some fig leaves together to cover themselves. At which point you're supposed to ask yourself, well, how do they know to sew? Do you ever wonder that? How do they know to sew? Where did she get the needle? Here, porcupine. The porcupine sticky back then? Also, like the bison, don't trust your hands. Before God even comes to them, they know shame. And notice how, how the shame is directed at their sexuality. The serpent has tricked them, and now, right from the start, their sexuality becomes problematic, which, of course, it is to this day in so many first thing where shame and guilt enter in. But it's going to get worse. Because God's coming for a visit. And now, they're not going to like what he has to tell them. Because he discovers their sin. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So God comes to visit, and they are hiding. Because sin makes us hide from God, because his holiness makes us aware of our sin, and how abhorrent our sin is. It's like the story in Luke 5, right? They're out fishing, they fished all night, they didn't catch nothing, Peter's exhausted, he just wants to go have a bagel and go sleep, and Jesus is like, hey, throw your net over there. Try to hide our sin. 
But yet we experience the guilt and shame anyway because we were created in a way to know God. And so our sin, in response to his holiness, creates guilt and shame. In fact, even, even people who have never heard of God or Jesus experience guilt and shame. It's universal to all cultures. There is not a culture that's ever existed that doesn't have guilt or shame. Because of the fall. Even post the fall, we retain some innate understanding that some things are just wrong. And when we do them, we feel guilt and shame. That's something evolution cannot explain. Okay, Darwinism can't explain that. Because according to Darwinism, survival of the fittest. If I'm the fittest, I get to survive, right? Well, God questions Adam, and of course, we know God already knows the answer, but he now wants to see how the first couple will react to being confronted. And from that reaction, we can see what I call the core of sin. Verses 12 and 13. The man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You know, there's a lot of words for sin in the Bible. I mean, there's a lot of them. Multifaceted. But at its core, I'm going to argue there are three main elements to sin that we're, all, we're going to see here. First of them is the most obvious one, it's disobedience. We already saw this, right? They disobeyed the one instruction God gave them. You had one job. And at its essence, all sin is somehow us not thinking or speaking or doing in line with what God wants, with his character or his instruction. Now remember, we are created with purpose and meaning by God. Sin conflicts with our purpose and meaning. As creator, God knows best how we should live. He designed it. He created us. He knows how best for us to live. When we sin, we are in some way not aligning with what is best for us, according to God, who knows exactly what. And thus, disorder is created. When we disobey God, we create offense to his holiness, and we put ourselves in a position to experience guilt and shame and cause pain to ourselves and others. And that's an element of every sin. But then, the next element is self-justification. Did you notice the man's response? He refuses to take accountability. Instead, he blames Eve and God for his sinful disobedience. Look what he says, right? The woman, the woman who you gave me. He blames the woman for giving him the fruit, and he blames God for giving him the woman. Nowhere does he say, I disobeyed and I was wrong. Even Taylor Swift knows, it's me. It's me. What is especially grievous, and shows how quickly their fallenness, their sin takes over, is that if you recall a few verses before, when God gave Eve to Adam, what does he say? Oh, 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 God. She's beautiful. 
leave under the bus to try to save himself. And he instantly has decided that he is more important than she is. And he is better than she is. And therefore, if he's got to throw her under the bus to protect himself, well, off you go. But the woman follows suit, right? Because she blames the serpent. Ah, the serpent, he deceived me. There's a lot of finger pointing here. And none of it is them pointing to the choice that they made to disobey God's one simple instruction. That is an element at the core of sin is we constantly look to everyone else except ourselves as the cause of our sin and our problems. It's somebody else's fault. Instead of taking ownership, we justify ourselves. Instead of confession, we seek cover-up. And of course, that doesn't work, which is why we need someone to do something to justify us before God, because we cannot justify ourselves, because in the end, it's our disobedience and it's our fault. Third thing, selfishness. Sin is always self-oriented. It's always about us. We know better than God. We know better than others. God, if you only understood my circumstances, I'm a special little snowflake. We want what we want. Instead of serving others, we want others to serve us. Our needs, our selfish needs, are always the most important thing. They're the primary. Our desires are most important. And you know, if other people have to suffer or be hurt for me to have what I want, well, so be it. Because I want what I want. If you, if you think about these three core sin issues, Right? Disobedience and self-justification and selfishness. And then you read the stories of the Bible where people sin. You're going to see these things in play. David sees Bathsheba. And what he wants, what he wants. He's selfish. He disobeys what he for sure knows is God's way. He knows what he's going to do with wrong. He selfishly takes Bathsheba. He disobeys in multiple ways, including murder, to what? To cover up his sin. Which is really just him trying to justify himself. Tons of sin stories in the Bible. You can find these elements there. Because sin just replays itself every time. Same with our sin. It just replays itself. We disobey, we try to justify ourselves, try to come up for a reason why it was okay that we did it, even though we shouldn't have done it. We want what we want, even if other people get hurt. So much of what we experience in life can be directly tied to the sin that entered the world with the fall. Even if we didn't have the Bible, okay? Even if you didn't have the Bible, we could easily discern that everyone, everywhere, is hardwired to sin. No one teaches a child to lie. I mean, do we teach our children to lie? No. Do we teach our children to be selfish? No. They come up with that really easily on their own by about age two. Right? Do 
first instinct when somebody questions us is to deflect, right? Or to come up with an excuse, to justify, to protect ourselves or our reputation. It's easy, it's natural for us to think of ourselves first and others later, if at all. Now, nowhere does that mean that any of us are as evil as we could be or something like that. It's just the point that all have sinned. And we all regularly face those three core sin issues. We want what we want. We're willing to justify ourselves. We're willing to throw people under the bus or whatever it takes. And we disobey, even when we know what we should do. Now, before we can move to the third act of God's story, right, the redemption act, where he's going to address all those things, and the climax of the, the cross and the resurrection, <coughs> we're going to spend some time next week looking at the depth of sin. Because when we talk about sin, I feel like it's like one of those late night night commercials. But wait, there's more! Because if it wasn't bad enough, it's going to get worse. God's going to tell them what the effects of sin are going to be. He's going to tell them the depth of how sin is going to affect their lives. So next time when we come back to Genesis, we will see the most serious consequence of the fall, and that is how sin has affected all of our relationships with everything in the universe. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationships with others, and our relationship with the actual physical creation Father God, it is easy, I think, for most of us to look into our lives and to see the core effects of sin. We know there's times where we've been selfish. We know there's times where we've tried to justify ourselves. We definitely know there's times we've disobeyed. And of course, we know the only solution to those things is ultimately Jesus, that we will talk about how he turns those things around and cut them loose. So we're grateful for the grace and mercy of our Lord that undoing the things of the fall because it's so easy for us to disobey and justify and be selfish. So we thank you for our Lord and Savior. We ask that you would help us to follow him and to be like him.